Let's turn to God's word. Uh, Mark chapter 4, and I want to read from verse 1, very familiar words, down to verse 9. And then from verse 26 to verse 29, which is what I'm going to be preaching on in a few minutes. Let's turn to the word of God in Mark's gospel and chapter 4 at the beginning. Mark 4 verse 1, and again he, Jesus, began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables, and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth, but when the sun was up it was scorched, and because it had no root it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty and some a hundred. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then at verse 26, another parable, there's many in this passage, agricultural parables. And Jesus said, verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how, for the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head after that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. We're going to turn to God's word. As I say, Billy agreed, we agreed that he would speak on the natural harvest this morning and I'd speak on the spiritual harvest this evening, but the passage brings both to our attention because the natural is, of course, a picture of the spiritual. And I want to speak in three sections tonight. Uh, The first is parallels between the natural and spiritual harvest from this verses in Mark 4, verse 26 to 29. And the second, a briefer section, about the differences between the natural and spiritual harvest. And then thirdly, go on to talk about the harvest day, the, both harvest days. Uh, but the point is to look at the kingdom of God. Jesus is using an illustration. The kingdom of God is as if. And he's using an illustration from what everybody around him would have been very familiar with and many would have been fully involved in namely harvesting crops for food. And he's saying, well, you know how that works. Think about it for the kingdom of God. But, of course, it's just a little story if you haven't got ears to hear. Let's think of the parallels between the natural and spiritual harvest. Got four here. You look at verse 26. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. But where do you get the seed from? Well, in terms of natural, of course, it's God. And originally, of course, because of creation. He has made this world. 
so that there are seed-bearing plants, including grain, grains of various types. In Genesis 1, we read verse 11, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed, there's twice in one verse, is itself in its, in, is in itself on the earth. <coughs> and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and that's the end of the creation for the third day. And so the earth, when Jesus says here in verse 28, brings forth, it brings forth because God has put in it plants that bring forth seed according to to their kind. So why does the farmer have seed to sow? God has provided it. Why, how is it the kingdom of God grows? God provides. He provides the seed of the word. Jesus explaining his first parable, verse 14, the sower sows the word. The word of God is the means of spiritual life. James, the apostle, says, or James who writes, James the Lord's brother, uh, says in James 1 and verse 18, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. So he's saying that we become God's people uh, like a harvest, like firstfruits of a harvest by the word. More explicitly, Peter in 1 Peter 1 and verse 23 talks of us having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. And goes on to say in verse 25 at the end, now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you, which of course is exactly what Jesus is saying here, that the seed is the word. So we can say, can't we, God provides the word, God caused this word to be written. God is the one who provides the seed and the seed goes on from year to year. God has provided the word and the word goes on from year to year. The word of life. There is a spiritual harvest because of the word. Second parallel. Someone sows the seed. It is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. The farmer. God works to bring about a harvest, but he works through humans. Of course, some seed will set itself and it will produce something. But if you just leave this world for, say you want wheat, and you say, we'll just have some natural wheat that's wild wheat and what it sows, we'll, well, you're all going to have a very, very thin time of it during the winter. But God says to the farmer, go and plant the seed. And the farmer plants the seed because he knows that putting some of the seed, which is his seed, and not making it into bread, but replanting it, will bring forth a harvest, sometimes 30, sometimes 60, sometimes 100-fold. Though when Jesus spoke that parable, uh, it seems as if 30 was quite normal. One seed, 30 coming from the head, 60 exceptional. A hundred, pretty well unheard of. But there it is. The farmer, God works through the farmer sowing the seed. Who does God work for, through in bringing about the kingdom of God? He works through the preacher. 
the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into glory, has given his church first apostles, then prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, all those who preach the word, word ministries. God works through humans. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 9, when he said the fields are white to harvest, verse 35, and he says, or verse 37, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the labourers are few, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labourers into his harvest. Pray for preachers, pray for God to raise up those who will preach the word throughout the world. Or in John 4 and verse uh, 37, uh, the Lord Jesus again, he's speaking and there it is. He sees the Samaritans and he says, look, the fields are white uh, to harvest. Uh, and so it, this is the picture, isn't it? Again and again in the word. But it's the preacher who preaches the word and through that preached word, God brings about a spiritual harvest brings people into his kingdom by the new birth. Now, just as some seed will sow itself, so you might say, like myself and others, oh, well, we weren't saved really by hearing a preacher, we were saved by reading the word of God. Uh, but who printed the word of God? Men did. You can always trace the distribution or the preaching and the proclamation of the word back to people. God uses people. <coughs> He doesn't send angels from heaven to proclaim his word. He has on one or two occasions, but he doesn't, that's not his normal practice. Third parallel. The seed produces a crop. There it is, verse 27. He sleeps, this man, who's sown his seed. He sleeps by night and he rises by day. And the seed sprouts and it grows and he himself does not know how. Now, you might have some very clever scientists who can speak uh, learnedly about the mechanics of how things happen within a seed and produce uh, something else which becomes another seed. But still, no one knows how chemical events produce life. You see, we can, in a sense, know how, but not the whole how, but the point Jesus is making is you don't have to know any of the how. You could have a farmer and he gets the hold of his seed and he plants it and here comes a crop and he does it the next year. And here comes a crop and he goes through his whole life and he never even once thinks, how does this work? And that's the tragedy, isn't it? That there are many farmers probably throughout this world who never once think, how does this work? And seek to find who it is who has made this continual miracle happen. What about the spiritual harvest? Well, we know what we're told in God's word. But again, we do not know the how. We do not know, there's a hymn that says this, don't we? How the spirit works and how he produces life in some, but not in all. The spirit blows where he will, John 3 and verse 8 says the Lord Jesus. We do not know, we cannot explain the process by which the preached word comes by the power of God's spirit in a heart and brings about the new birth, brings about conviction of sin, brings about repentance, brings about faith. We know he does it. 
We know it because God's word tells us he does it and we know it if we're believers because he's done it in us. And we might know the details to some extent of, uh, of the experience of how he did it in us, but we do not know the how. Because the whole harvest is surely a, if there's any such thing, a continuing miracle. And the kingdom of God being brought about by the new birth of many is definitely a continuing miracle. Interposition of God into the human soul by his Holy Spirit, one by one, perhaps sometimes a great number at once, but still one by one, as he chooses so that two people are sitting there, they hear the same words, they are listening, they're not asleep, they hear, they understand perhaps the same words and one goes out converted and the other goes out lost. Fourth parallel. The crop ripens. Here it is, verse 28. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain in the head. The usual translation is in the ear, isn't it? The crop ripens and you get a field full of corn. And it's God's blessing. And in the kingdom of God, the crop ripens. And in the end, all the elect are saved. Some, of course, now are already in glory. Others are on the earth. Kingdom of God consists of those who are Christ's people, whether it, the kingdom above or the kingdom below. The kingdoms are but one, as Charles Wesley says. So there is the parallel again, isn't there? A continuing ripening, a continuing growing. The, there is the blade, and then there is the head, and then the full grain, and, and the whole thing becomes something that is is coming to completion and you can see it coming to completion and even people like me who know very little about agriculture at all can drive through the countryside and you as well if you know little about agriculture and you can say that field looks right that, that looks as though it's about right and you go past the next day and it's all been harvested and perhaps there's bales of straw or whatever and you say yeah it was ripe it was ready so there's some parallels we haven't got to the harvesting, itself, the harvesting itself yet. That will come. But before we do get to that, I want to talk about the difference between the natural and the spiritual harvest. Well, there is one, of course, that is blindingly obvious. So blindingly obvious, I don't have to say about it. It is a natural harvest and a spiritual harvest. That's the difference. But let's think of three differences. You see, go back to verse 27. Here is this man, this farmer, and he's sleeping by night and rising by day. And what is he doing when he rises by day? Well, he might look out at his fields, but if he's sown his crop in, say, February, and he knows that the weather's been all right overnight, and uh, it's now March or April, and he knows the crop will come in about August, he doesn't actually have to go out, does he, and look at his field and say, I wonder if it's all right today. He can be about other things. And he can say sometimes perhaps, well, we need a bit of rain or we need a bit of sun. And if he's a Christian, he'll pray for it. But he, we need a bit of rain, we need a bit of sun because God sends the weather. And he knows he can't do anything about the weather. And perhaps the farmer has cows and he has to 
some of the time of the year he's more looking after cows. He's sown his field or he's, he's got sheep and he's sown his field and, and the next thing, well, that's lambing. And so he's not thinking about his field of corn at all. And, he go, and it's right, that's the point. He doesn't have to be thinking every moment, I wonder if my corn is growing. Because it is, because God is providing the conditions for it to grow. When God is blessing, in normal circumstances. Now what is God doing? Well I think it would be right to say God is doing other things than building his spiritual kingdom. For a start he is sustaining the whole universe by his word of power. But the point is of course God is not unmindful. The farmer having sown the seed can do very little. But God actively is making the harvest grow. He is making it grow numerically. He is bringing more and more sinners into his kingdom. He is making it grow in the hearts of believers. So that as we grow in Christ, we will be more likely to go out and sow the word. He is making it grow in believers so that we are more and more becoming full corn and producing fruit to him. He is working in the events in the world so that how is it that that suddenly a, a nation which wouldn't allow the gospel in does, like China, if you go back to the time of Hudson Taylor, And then you go on a hundred years, wasn't it? China's open century, they speak of. And suddenly you can't go in as a missionary, though the church is still growing. And different nations, Albania, closed the gospel for so long and then it's opened again. Hardly any Christians, three probably, are found still alive. But God works. Or a nation like Britain, well, we have freedom for the gospel now, but we didn't have, and will we have in, in ten years' time? What we have to remember in faith, in the sovereign God, is that he works all these events in the world. And he does them all to bring about the harvest of those who are his elect, who are going to be harvested. And we don't know the ins and outs of the details of why God does it in the way he does it. But he is not unmindful. Because he is infinite. And while he is making the vast galaxies roll on their axes, he is also at work in the heart of a little child, bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. And he can do that for the hundred people at the same time all over the world, a million people if he chooses. God is in control. The harvest is sure. And the second parallel, again from verse 27, Jesus says, the man himself does not know how. Now we spoke of that earlier, uh, but there the contrast was uh, between not knowing how the earthly uh, uh, corn grows and how uh, spiritual corn grows in the soul. But here's a different contrast, you see. Man doesn't know how the earthly crop grows, but God does know how the heavenly one does. Don't need to say much more about that one, do I? But we move on to another, verse 29. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now here is the farmer and he doesn't know how large his harvest will be. All sorts of catastrophes might happen. He might get some sort of blight or pest 
which just eats everything away. There might be a hurricane comes and just flattens the whole lot. There might be, in many cultures, enemies who come in and steal his corn. You have examples of that in the time of the judges, don't you? The Midianites would come in and just take the harvest every year. So the, har- the farmer can be sitting there looking at his harvest thinking in a few days that corn is going to be fine and it, it, his hopes can come to nothing. But that's not the case in the spiritual harvest. God knows the size of it. It is utterly secure. Here are the words of the Lord Jesus in John 6 and verse 37. Well no, verse where he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So Jesus is saying, everyone, the Father has, as he clearly keeps saying, a people. He knows who he's chosen to save. And he gives those people to the Son. And the Son dies and they are going to be saved. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And they will all come. The Holy Spirit will bring each and every one of the elect to Jesus Christ in God's perfect timing. And once they are in, they're in forever. Because Jesus says, the one who comes, I will by no means cast out. Never evicted from the kingdom. So there's no catastrophe that is going to prevent even one of God's chosen people from being harvested, from being brought into his eternal kingdom. However weak you are, however sinful you are, however much you fear your faith will fail, Christ will hold you fast. Let's move on thirdly to the harvest day. What is that determined by? Well, the Lord Jesus says here, verse 29, but when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. It is determined by the day the harvest is ripe. In terms of the harvest in our fields, it is by the farmer's judgment. He could get it a bit wrong. He could say, I wish I'd left it a few days more, or I wish I'd harvested it a few days earlier. But a farmer with a practised eye is going to say, I think next week. And then on the Tuesday he's going to say, yeah, if it's good weather on Thursday, that looks about right. And he's not going to get it far wrong. Well, God, of course, has perfect knowledge. And he knows all... His elect. And he knows when they have been born again. And he knows that they are in when they are in Christ. And he knows the day when every one of those who he has purposed to save is now in the kingdom of God. And that day the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Because this world is simply a place for God to bring his people into his kingdom forever. And there is a verse which is often, I think, misunderstood. I'm not alone in thinking this. Which teaches this very clearly. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. 
And you know the verse well. The Lord is talking of the Lord's coming and people are saying, where's this coming? He promised. When's he coming? The Lord, they say he's slow. No, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But is long-suffering toward, I have us, some versions have you. In this context, it makes not the slightest difference. The point is it's Christians he's talking of. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We know it's Christians because in verse 1, chapter 1, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, there's God's salvation, we have obtained from God a gift of God, like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. It is, God is long-suffering to the world as he gathers in his people. And that's why Christ hasn't come back yet. We don't know why God has planned that it's 2,000 years or however long it's going to be. And we don't know how many he's going to bring in. And we can say, I suppose, that there are an awful lot more people in the world now. And if God chooses to bring a great wide world, worldwide revival, there'll be a lot more people in the kingdom than if he did it 100 years ago because population has increased. We don't know. But God knows. And he knows and he will say he's already set a day. He has already set a day when he will judge the world by the man he has appointed. Because he knows on that day all his ransomed church will have been gathered to Christ. And there is the harvesting. How does it work? Well here it's, he's, he puts in the sickle. By the farmer a real sickle of course. But you go through the field and you chop the harvest down and he might have many workers but it talks of one here and it takes a little while to harvest by sickle. I was thinking of this passage and I thought well nowadays you don't normally do that in this country though you do in many and you'd have a combine harvester and it destroys the imagery. I'm not so sure it does destroy the imagery. If you could imagine a combine harvester which could harvest a field in an instant that would actually be a better imagery than the sickle. Of course, the Lord Jesus had to talk of a sickle. They didn't have combine harvesters. But that's the point, you see. Christ's harvest is a spiritual harvest, and it comes all at once. It is, it's a grotesque thought if you imagine it, perhaps, but it is an immense worldwide sickle, and it gathers every believer in at the same time to be with God, with Christ forever. But it's a little bit more complicated than that in some ways. In that there are two harvests, very distinctly Revelation 14 and its imagery because it's from the book of Revelation. So you don't push all the imagery. But what does it say there in verse 14? John looked and behold a white cloud and on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown, this is Christ and in his hand a sharp sickle and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud thrust in your sickle and reap for the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe so he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. It sounds strange to have an angel giving orders to the Lord Jesus Christ, but the angel is a messenger from the Father in the imagery, from the Father saying to the Son, now is the day. And he gathers in his people. But you go on into verses 17 and onwards, then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. 
he also having a sharp sickle. Not Christ, an angel. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for their grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles. This is in the picture John sees for 1,600 furlongs. It's the last judgment. The last judgment occurs six times in the book of Revelation. That's how the parallelism works. And the two harvests are so graphic, aren't they? The harvest by Christ as his people gathered in the grain and in this imagery the harvest of the vine and it's hacked down by a sharp sickle and the wine press is filled and trampled and it's the wrath of God. And that's so sobering, isn't it? And something we need always to remember. There is the harvest of the righteous who rise to be with Christ, accompany him to judgment, 1 Thessalonians 4. And there is the harvest of the wicked who are thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. And this is the world in which we live. And so what are we to do? We are, first of all, five things. The first is, we are to believe it. We are to believe that God has a kingdom. This is the pictures that's used here. God has a kingdom which can be likened to a field of corn. And it's all growing. And in the end, it will be gathered in. All is safely gathered in ere the winter storms begin. We sang that, actually, of the natural harvest but uh, Alfred's great hymn is, is giving us the, uh, the imagery that Christ is giving us isn't it? it's a biblical hymn one day all is safely gathered in ere the eternal storm begins and we need to believe that because we live in a world where people ridicule the whole concept where if they think of the Christian church at all, and they think of it without ridicule, they think of it as a purely human organisation containing those who want to be, or by nature are, some sort of religious people. And we, and the humblest Christian is wiser than the greatest, most intelligent person by the grace of God, we, we see the world with the different spectacles, don't we? With God's eyes, through God's word. We see that walking around in the streets around us are those who are going to be gathered in to God forever and those who, unless he intervenes in their lives, are going to be gathered into the winepress of his wrath. And every human being is one or the other. There is nothing in between. And we need to know that. And we need to know, secondly, that what Jesus is speaking of, therefore, here is what is happening in the world. The kingdom is growing, unbeknown to the world. And people become Christians and the world ridicules them and casts them out and kills them. And that doesn't stop them being in God's kingdom. 
And therefore the number is growing all the time. There are always more Christians than there were. Even if they got a day when there's no Christians on earth, there are always more Christians than there were until that last day when the harvest comes. And we need to see that too, don't we? And we need to be those then who are going forth with good news for everyone and telling people of Christ. Because we need to remember, thirdly, all believers are in the kingdom. Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God. And sometimes in the parables of the kingdom, it's more what's happening on earth. And sometimes it's more what's happening in heaven and in eternity. And sometimes it's about the judgment. But that's why Jesus keeps saying the kingdom of God is like. Because he gives different parables in order to give the different aspects of the kingdom. One parable can't do it all. But what we have to remember is that all believers are in the kingdom, including those with Christ. And those you know and those you love who are God's people are in the kingdom of God. And we are in the kingdom of God. And the world doesn't see it. But we know it. And this is true. And this is just as true as anything else you could be told. This is just as true as 2 plus 2 equals 4. God's kingdom is the reality. So fourthly, we need to remember this too, and this is just as true as 2 plus 2 equals 4. One day the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And one day he will gather in his harvest. And if you are a believer here this evening, that is a cause for immense rejoicing. The God who has begun the good work in you and brought you into the kingdom by the new birth will keep you safe through this world and afterward will receive you to glory. And when the Lord Jesus comes, weak and sinful though we are, he will gather us in. Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the creation, the foundation of the world. And it's absolutely certain it's absolutely certain that, that, as Paul puts it, and there are other passages, aren't there, just to quote a few verses, that we find the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise, and then we who are alive, if we're still here, will be changed in an instant, and we'll all be with the Lord forever. And we know it's true. But do we know how important it is? How much does it control our lives? The Lord Jesus in his infinite wisdom gave the Lord's Supper. We're not having it tonight, I know. So think of this before next week. And he said, there's two things you do here. You remember my death and you proclaim it until I come again. He didn't even mention his resurrection at the Lord's Supper. He mentioned his death and his return. He say, you're between these two poles. I have come to die for you as sinners. And one day I'll come again and take you to be with myself that you will be where I am also. Let not your hearts be troubled. And if you're a believer, how much does it grip your soul? How much do you see, as we've been singing in our first hymn, and desire that Christ will come? 
Or are we earthbound in our thinking? And let me say, make sure this is you. Maybe there are no one, there might be people here tonight who are still outside of Christ. Make sure it's not you. That's all you can say. I could say, try and make sure it's nobody else, but only you know the heart and only you can repent and only you can trust in Christ by God's work in your soul. Make sure. Look at the two harvests and make sure you are in the harvest of the grain and not the harvest of the grapes in Revelation 14. Do not leave it an uncertain question. Pause my soul. Ask the question. Am I ready to meet God? But believers, lastly, rejoice. And as we rejoice in the greatness of our salvation, the greatness of God's love and the greatness of God's grace, go out and tell. Seek to gather in the loved ones for whom our Lord did die, who we don't know who they are. But go forth and tell the people the good news of the gospel. Be a farmer who sows the seed. You don't have to be a preacher from a pulpit or in the open air or whatever. We can all tell. Tell of Christ. Tell of the kingdom. Tell of the way into the kingdom through faith in the crucified Saviour. And while you're doing it, do it with rejoicing. It's not a chore. Because if you're rejoicing in the fact that Jesus has come and saved sinners on the cross and he's going to come again to take them to himself, it should be, if you're rejoicing in that in your heart, it should be something you rejoice to tell others. Because you want them to be there too. So there's a natural harvest and there's a spiritual harvest. And we can learn from the great truth that Jesus taught just in these four verses. And let's make sure we do it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the natural harvest. Again at the close of this Harvest Sunday. And we thank you for the provision bountifully made in this world for us. And we thank you that by your grace we are found in that spiritual field growing corn, harvested one day, brought into be with you forever, forever with the Lord. Amen. So let it be. Here as we pray, our Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.